But I wanted to uh, introduce our, our teaching here this morning a little bit. Oh, come on. Come back here. Eh. Before we get into actually re- reading the Scripture, so I wanted to introduce our, the concept here of our, of our passage here today. Um, and so I have a question that I think maybe a lot of us are, you know, have asked or are asking or people that we know are asking us um, and is making us, making us think and kind of delve into all of the, the things about our faith. But the number one question I, I want to ask here this morning is, why should we trust our faith? Why should we trust that our faith is true? Why should we trust the Scriptures? Why should we trust what we believe? I mean, that's a fair question, right? How many people have gotten that question recently? Right? I've gotten that, that question. I've seen that question. You're like, why should, I, why should we trust our faith? Right? If people ask you that, or have you seen that on Facebook, or on, in the comment sections, right? or at least if they're not asking the question, they're saying, you can't trust your faith. Because of this reason, because of that reason, because of this reason, because we're so much more intellectual, we're smarter. They're, they were dumb back then. This chronological snobbery, as though they were stupid, but we're smart because we have the internet. Yeah. Even though it's probably actually worked the opposite direction. Uh, if we looked in this comment section, you know that is not true. That in the internet brings intelligence, you know. But let's talk about the Bible for for a minute. You know, so. My question is like, what, what is it? Like, what, why do we have this? You know, the fact that we have this is pretty epic and amazing. The fact that we have something that we can read the scriptures and read about God and have the Lord speak to us through his word. This is huge. There's not a lot of faiths in this world besides outside of and before the Christian faith that actually wrote their stuff down to believe in, which I came to discover. Um, but it's funny. So actually, so this is kind of a fun uh, introduction. But yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but uh, Instagram has now like this super trendy viral thing of like all the men in America are all of a sudden talking about the Roman Empire. Have you guys seen this? And someone asked me the other day, I was like, why do you think about the Roman Empire so much? Or, or do, you, do you think about the Roman Empire? I'm like, oh, all the time. I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's interesting. This is a thing now. You know, us men are, are super obsessed with the Roman Empire. I think probably the majority of it is because we're seeing ourselves in the end times of the Roman Empire. The collapse of the Roman Empire is impending. It's basically kind of, I think, the majority of what I've seen, at least on the internet about it. But it's funny like that I'm preaching about the Roman Empire and the early church was made and established in the Roman Empire. So that's why I think about the Roman Empire so much. is because it's the backdrop for everything that I'm teaching in the scriptures, in the book of Acts. But let's talk about the Bible. We have the Bible what is the Bible? It is a collection of writings written over a period of about 1,500 years consisting of a history of about 4,000 years or more. It records humanity's interaction with Yahweh. Humanity's interaction with the God above gods, the Lord above lords, the creator of this world. It was actually written, so just a little bit, little bit of backdrop, especially about the Pentateuch, which is the first five. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. I don't know why I can't keep using this one. This one's prettier. Uh, <laughs> so the first five books of the Bible, you know, Genesis, uh, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Deuter- and Deuteronomy, Numbers and Deuteronomy, were written by Moses way after they had been written. Way, way after the, the things that it records were written. And so... Especially Genesis. So Genesis happened, but all the stories, all the narratives, all the accounts in the book of Genesis specifically and the beginning of of the book of Exodus were oral traditions passed down for generations. That's how we get the account of Adam and Eve. That's how we get the account of the creation itself because no one was there to write it down as it was happening. There's not a historian watching Jesus, watching God create the world and saying, okay, and he did this, and he did that, and we don't have that. Like, it wasn't an eyewitness account of the creation outside of Yahweh himself, right? And so, all these things were passed down for a period of about 3,000 years. There's 3,000 years of the earth's history that's not really recorded in this. Wrap your minds around that. From the time of Moses, 
to today is about 3,000 years. So for 3,000 years before Moses, we don't have a lot of history in this. We have like things that happened here and there, and we have the, the patriarchs like you know Abraham, but not a whole lot outside of that. A lot of these things were written during the times of other things like that were being written like the mythologies of Hinduism and the mythologies of the Egyptians and Baal and Asherah and Mesopotamia and the Sumerian religions. That's where we get the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's kind of during this early time about three to 4,000 years ago. But the, the Bible is one of the only things that actually records a creation story, a creation narrative, with this explicit reason and purpose of giving it credit. That's why Genesis 1 is actually a statement of truth and worship, not one of history, specifically. It's saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not Ra, not Horus, not Isis, not Osiris. Not your Ill, 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 illegitimate little g gods that we've talked about. Our God, Yahweh. Now, some people would say, like, oh, our God is just the borrowed God from Sumerian called Yah, you know, and that was a little, little God that didn't really matter much, matter much to their pantheon. But what this book is saying is that, no, 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 that, it's almost like Paul, right? He's like, I see your, your super you know, spiritual people, I see all these idols everywhere. All these gods, even have one to the unknown God, just to make sure all of your bases are covered. And Paul is saying, that's the God, that's the true God above all gods. And that's in essence what this is saying, is that Yah, the little God that you sort of recognize, that you've tried to bury, that is the true God. That is the true Creator and Lord Most High over all your itty little pathetic little gods and idols that you worship. Our God is the true God. The true most high. And this book, it records all of humanity's interaction with Him. His signs and His wonders, His power, the rebellion of the people, but also the mighty works of Yahweh through His people, Israel. It gives us an honest history of the kings and prophets over a period of about 500 years. And then it gives us eyewitness, personal testimony accounts of people's real interactions with God through the undeniable works of miracles and firsthand accounts of Jesus' teachings. God became flesh and dwelt among us. In and of itself, it claims to be the authority of our faith. The Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew, but in the centuries before Jesus' birth, they were actually translated, all of them, into Greek because Greek became the language of the entire empire. It was the empire that took over Jerusalem. And so they wrote the, tra the, the translation of the Bible into Greek so that they could understand it, so they could know the God of the Bible. Um, it was most likely the Old Testament scripture, uh, what's called the Septuagint. It's, a, it's the Greek translation. This was most likely the Old Testament scripture that the early church was using in the Gentile regions. In the, in the first through third centuries, beginning and also the beginning of the fourth, the scriptures, specifically the Gospels and the letters uh, that were written and copied, were written and copied in Greek. Because Greek was the common language. The power of the gospel has always been that its writers desired to write it in the common language so that all people would be able to know and understand and read the word of God and know God. Know the true God. Know the real stories of the God of the Bible. The God of the universe. The written language uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire. In the second century, Jerome, this guy, uh, translated uh, the Bible into Latin from the Greek, from the Septuagint. He translated it into Latin. He, did, he both did a good and a terrible job. And that's a whole other conversation. In order to reach 
Because you know, the Roman Empire was transitioning more and more into, you know, over to using Latin as its basis. Because it started in Rome before Christ, but then it started to expand to the rest of the empire of the Greek-speaking Greek language reading and writing empire. So they transitioned to Latin. In the 4th century, <coughs> the Council of Nicaea recognized the canon. By asking four specific questions, because so you know, we might have heard the, the criticism like, "Oh, the Catholic Church like chose which books to put in the Bible and which ones didn't make the cut because they didn't like them." They they ex- excluded like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and my favorite, the in, the infancy Gospel of Jesus, where where Jesus was get, getting really really annoyed by a kid. I just kind of I kind of imagine like you know Jackson and Zach and like you know Zach Zach is Jesus and you know like pushes this kid off a cliff that gets annoying him and kills him and like goes down there and like brings him back to life. It's like oh shoot, mom's gonna find out. That's a real story in the gospel in the infancy gospel of Jesus. I, I kid you not. There's reasons why there's, there's stupid books that didn't make it into the Bible. And they asked these four questions. Was the author an apostle? Or did they have a close connection with an apostle? Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Not just like in this city or this city. Because what would happen is that like you know, Rome would have like 3,000 copies of one of these books. These Gnostic Gospels. That were written like 200 years after they were supposedly happened. But none of the other churches in the entire empire used it. Versus like, okay, there were 20 copies here, 20 copies there, 4 copies here, 6 copies there, 20 copies there, 38 copies there. Like all these different you know, book, you know, books were, were written and, and collected and the church at large used it, read it, had it, right? They wanted to, to, to get more of a consensus of what churches were already using it and accepted it. Number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And number four, did the book bear witness to high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? Because he could read something. I mean, you could read some of these things. Like even Christian books, they're great. They're not inspired by God. Some of these books are great and they're helpful and they're wonderful. Like chicken soup for the full, chicken soup for the soul is great, right? But like it's not the Bible. It's not God inspired. They may tell, be telling some amazing God stories, but you don't read the words of the page of a Christian of a, of a typical Christian book and say, "Wow, Holy Spirit's in that." Wow, that was really educational. It was great, wonderful, woo, awesome. But then you come to back to the Bible and you're like, "That's the Bible." That's got the power of God all over it. It is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. That's my Bible. That's the power of the Gospel. That's one of the questions that they asked. Then the Bible manuscripts that were in possession of the church were kept safe and preserved and then copied and circulated throughout the now, in this point of history, the Holy Roman Empire. Then you get guys like John Wycliffe and John Huss who translated the Bible in the 15th century into the common language and the Catholic Church didn't really like that so much and so they killed them. They executed them. Like we talked about about a couple months ago. And then you have the Tyndale Bible which was the very first Bible translated into English from which we get, it's also known as the King's Bible or the Geneva Bible. Um, Oh yeah, Michael was using the, uh, the Geneva Bible. Um, it's also known as the Great Bible. Then you get the King James Bible. These were all, these, Eng- these first English ones were translated from the Vulgate. Like, remember that book I told you about that was translated into Latin that Jerome did a good job and a bad job with, right? That, all these, these, tr- these later translations like the Geneva and the Tyndale and the King James were written, translated from the Vulgate, from the Latin translation not the original languages. And actually, the King James was written from a translation of the Vulgate you know, later on. That's another conversation for the KJV onlyists. <laughs> but let's talk about now, you know, talk, talk about Rome. Let's talk about Rome, the Roman Empire. Woo, here we go. Ladies, you're involved now in, the, in our conversation about the Roman Empire. You're welcome. So the Greeks and the Romans had no central religious text. 
They couldn't pick up a Bible of the, of the Greeks, of the Greek, of the Greek gods. There wasn't a first, first Zeus and second Zeus, you know, or a first and second Trojan Wars. They didn't, they didn't have this. They had a collective. They had, they did have like these, these writings, which were kind of stories and things that were revealed as, you know, kind of scriptures of sacred origin. Some even said that they were like canon, whatever. But some of these are like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and the Homeric hymns, the Hesiod's Theogony and works and days. Uh, Pindar's odes were regarded as authoritative and even perhaps inspired, like I said. But as well as like as as well as stories of the stories of the of the origins of the city of Rome, so a lot of the establishments of the cities in which the Roman Empire was built through have these pagan god stories because they had they these cities had to have a divine origin, which actually is part of our text this morning, which we'll get to here in a minute. Um, <coughs> but they did not have a direct or centralized. Text. Neither were their stories focused on historical accounts outside kind of an ode to the Trojan Wars. The Greek and Roman religions were centered mainly on caricatures, on rites and rituals, on practices. And another big thing about the Roman Empire, which is very important, I think, even for us today, is festivals. A big part of their worship was to get the whole city involved in festivals. Because even if people didn't believe or worship Zeus, they wanted the whole town to worship Zeus through a festival. They would make it fun. They would make it beautiful. They would make it loud and fun. They'd make it the holiday of the day. So that everyone else would worship their pagan god with them. Because it's not that big a deal. It's just this fun festival with big old, with great flowers and a parade and this and that. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's fun. At least it gets people together. Can we think of any of those holidays in our day and culture? Maybe. A few of them. Valentine's Day? Easter. Easter? Well, sort yeah. Kind of. Right. And we can have a whole, yeah, Halloween, Christmas. Uh, we can go on and on with that's a conversation for another day because that's where uh, an area where like let's figure out how to have conversations around these so that we can all live by our conscience so that we're not like putting our ways over one another but that we are coming to a place where we feel in our conscience that we are right with God and that we are celebrating things through a right heart Uh, because so much has been mingled there's been a mixture in a lot of areas like like easter itself and christmas right there's been mixtures and things like that so we can let's have conversations learn how to have conversations about those to where we're not guilting and condemning one another that's really where my heart is um but even in the in these beliefs of the gods they always recognized that they were not all-powerful They always recognized that they were subject to a higher power. They were subject to deities which are kind of like elusive, like fate. Fate was like the number, like more powerful than even like Zeus. They all had to submit to fate. They all had to submit to death. They all had to submit to time. They had all these, these things, you know, these kind of deities that were kind of concepts above them. And if you look at a lot of the ways that this con- these concepts and things were described, it was almost like, oh, that's Yahweh. The Creator. The one who's outside of time. Who's above the gods. Oh, it's actually even like in their pantheon, they recognize another god outside their own pantheon that is above them. Hmm. wonder who that could be. There's an avenue for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Yahweh. They were subject to higher powers of creation. The God, the Most High God. That's why it says in the Scriptures, all over the place, it says the Most High God. And that's why this is why the first commandment in the Bible 
is to God's people to have no other gods before me. Have no other gods besides me. Followed by then, do not make idols or bow down in worship to idols. Because what do the gods want to do? They want to manifest themselves in this world. But they can't without a physical object or person to manifest through. They cannot become human themselves. All they can do is come and possess a human being. All they can do is come and possess an object. They can receive worship through an object. If they, if they, if they get you to carve an image for them, for them to take a possession in. They can manifest themselves and their power in this world. Temples. That's, what, that's why temples. Temples were, were believed to be the existence, the actual physical footstool and, and place where these deities resided. And that's why they would come to the temple to worship these different gods. Because that's where the god lived. In Ephesus, that was where Diana or, or uh, Artemis lived. That was her home. The gods are, and I want to to be very clear on this, all the gods that you hear about throughout history are real. I think we've talked about this, but for the new new folks here, all the gods, all all these deities in the scripture, all the Baals and the Asherahs and the Dianas and the Artemises and the Isis and the Osirises and the Horuses and the Sets and and the Hermeses and the Poseidons and the Neptunes and whatever it is, all the deities are real. They are real created entities in Scripture, Job, read Job 1 and 2, that led humanity away from, your, from worshiping Yahweh starting at the Tower of Babel. Deuteronomy 32, uh, chapter 32, verse 8 says, at, the, at Babel, he said, remember at, the, at Babel when God separated Israel by the number of the sons of God. This word Elohim. Half the time it's used in reference to Yahweh himself, but more than half the time it's used to refer to this heavenly council of spiritual beings in the heavenly hierarchy. You've got Yahweh at the top, then you've got the four living creatures, then you have the group called the Elohim, the heavenly council. And then you have the archangels, then you have the angels, and then you have all the spirits. There's a great resource on this. Look, if, you're gonna, if, you're gonna, if you want to research this stuff, write, write this down. Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, Unseen Realm. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. The shorter version of it that is called Supernatural. <coughs> it's kind of the abridged version of it. It's really good. Um, but the, the, the un, Unseen Realm is a great resource to just begin your research into this, into this topic. Um, but it, 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 so all like they said, like the Egyptian, the Mesopotamian, you know, Sumerian, Hindu, Zoroastrian, Buddhism, Nordic paganism, Druid paganism, Celtic paganism, Greek and Roman paganism, where you know this is where they all come from and stem from is from Babel. That's where they all start. The rebellion of the Elohim. To be worshipped by humanity. Yahweh disinherited the earth. Remember what happened in the flood? Sin went nuts. He's like, I'm going to destroy humanity. I'm going to you know, hit the reset button. And then what happens is that again, he's at this point where like, you have become so evil yet again. I'm done. I am disinheriting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I will hand you over to yourselves and to, 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 the, to your gods. Go for it. Worship them. I want nothing to do with you. But God, my two favorite words in all the scripture, but God said, no, I will not give up on humanity. I will reinherit the earth by, by choosing one guy in his family. His name was Abram, who became Abraham. He chose Abraham and decided to re-inherit the earth through him. You will be my people and all your descendants. As, you know, the, there'll be numerous at the, as the stars. Look at the stars. That's as numerous as, as my children, as your children will be, who will be my people. 
I will re-inherit humanity. You will be my people and I will be with you as your God. Yahweh chose to transition the worship of and relationship with Him into then a direct and intimate relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Inviting the invitation not just to the physical descendants of Abraham, but to all the world. To come to Him through the fulfilled promise and covenant of Abraham through Jesus Christ. So we have relationship with Yahweh through Jesus Christ by the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. That He is our God. That we are His people. That we worship Him and Him alone. He invited all humanity back into relationship with Him through faith in Jesus. The forgiveness of sins. To receive a new nature and to be filled with His very presence. The pagan world said, you have to sacrifice to the gods to reap their benefits. You have to go to the temple, to their presence. But God said, my presence will be in you. But here's the thing. They don't, the gods, they don't love you. They enjoy being worshipped by you. Like a narcissist. That's what the gods are. They're divine narcissists. They love being worshipped, but they don't give anything back. Except they might throw you a bone every once in a while. They will never love you, but they expect and require to be loved by you. Or else. But God, Yahweh, invites us to love Him and be loved by Him. He is the only God in all the creation who loves those first. That's why it's so important. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and chose us to love Him. That's the glory. That's the beauty of the Gospel message. Is that we are His because He loved us first. To experience His grace to experience His mercy and His joy. Not by going to a building, but by Him making us His dwelling. Each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. A residing place for the Shekinah glory of heavenly God. Of the God of the, uh, of the heavens. The God of all gods. Yahweh Himself. So, finally... Acts chapter 14. Let's stand together. <laughs> that was my introduction. And we got two minutes left. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Okay, here we go. Starting in uh, verse 8. says, oh, here we go. There, sorry, I forgot to put it on the on thing. It says this in uh, Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. In Lystra, a man was sitting who had who was without strength in his feet, had never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet! And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw that what, had, what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the, in the Lycanonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gate because he intended, with the crowds, to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this, and they rushed into the crowd shouting, People! Why are you doing these things? We're We're people also, just like you. And we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to go their own way, although He did not leave Himself without a witness, since He did 
since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Lord Jesus, Yahweh Most High, we come before you in your name to open up your word, to hear what you have to say to us, Lord Jesus, Lord, to, be, to grow in our faith. Lord, to, to see a revelation, to experience a revelation of you, Yahweh, here this morning. So speak through your word. Speak through your beautiful, divinely inspired word here this morning through our hearts. And Lord, let, let this morning really be a, an encouraging time for us um, that we would leave this place encouraged and, and sent away with joy and love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. So turn away, turn from worthless things and worship the living God. Turn away from worthless things and turn and worship the living God. Can, did you see kind of what I was talking about with all these beliefs here in our passage here this morning? To see the, the temple of Zeus and the, and the, the practices of, of, the, of what they would do at festivals and the bulls, and the wreaths, and all sorts of the decorations and stuff. You saw it all over our passage here this morning. And you see that they have a God for everything. A God for the sun, a God for you know, the heavens, the stars, the ocean, like Poseidon, and Neptune. That's why the restaurant over in, in, in uh, Livingston is called Neptunes. It's after the Roman god, Neptune, who is the god of the ocean and waters. Leviathan spirits, like for rivers and things like that. River gods. Do you see pagan beliefs and distorted morals of the pagan gods today? Everywhere, right? Lying, stealing, hatreds, adultery, sexual distortions, for starters. That's just to get started. But where can we, where, you know, where in our lives, where in, in, our, in our faith, where in kind of our normal everyday to day and month to month or year to year, year to year, routines and, and cycles and rotations, can we see ways that God is calling us to turn from worthless things and worship the living God? I want that question to be in our minds this morning. Because I think, with, like I said, mixture. Mixture is always the enemy's way. God, you know, the enemy doesn't just tell you a blatant lie. He tells you a truth and twists it or interjects a mixture of falsehoods. So where are the falsehoods that have interjected them into our daily lives, into our, the festivals and holidays that we celebrate today? The worship of Zeus would actually include a Februus, which is where we, and they would cleanse the, the Zeus's temple in the second month of the year. Then that's where they caught the name February. It was from the Februus festival that happened in February. Even our months today are named after pagan holidays and pagan belief structures. Sunday was named after uh, Constantine's favorite god, Sol Invictus. Sun Day. Sun's Day. Saturnalia. Saturday. Day. Saturn's Day. Right? All these different holidays, even days of the week. Everything is so integrated. But of course, we don't worship you know, Sol Invictus today. We don't worship, we, we worship Jesus. We worship Yahweh. <coughs> but we are in a calendar, in a, in a sense, in a culture, just like they were. They were, in a, they, were, they were in the Roman culture, Roman society. They were interjected, but they weren't worshiping their gods. But here's the thing, in our culture today, what are, and this is the hard part, this is something I think we have to prayerfully consider and prayerfully look into. What are the worthless things in our culture that we have been inundated with that you know, even, even may even be venerated by? We may even be venerating these things today. What are these worthless things? Write that question down. 
where do we see the worthless things that we need to turn from to worship the living God? But even just the question of what are they? I think we need to perfectly consider these things because I think the church has been asleep for a long time to a lot of these things. And we've gone to the festivals just like maybe they would have back then, not thinking, oh, this is actually worshiping Zeus. This is worshiping a lesser God than our God. What are, what are some of the worth, worthless things? Worthless things, and here's the thing, may often and most likely are beautiful, fun, appealing. We really, really want to participate. We really, really want to celebrate. We really, really want to go to that, that holiday sale to get this and that and the other. I mean, because here's the thing, guys. Evil is not going to come out and be all like... <laughs> it's not going to be gross. It's not going to make you go... Ugh. Yikes. It's not going to do that. It's going to be so beautiful that it lures you in. And makes you think that life any other way is weird and uncomfortable. And it'll isolate you from society. Because it's so inviting and so like, ooh, this is beautiful, this is wonderful, I feel so good, I feel the warm tinglies. Oh my gosh, it's PSL season. Mm. One got it. <laughs> PSLs are not pagan, come on. Yeah. But it's like that. It's like they get they get you in. Not all, just even just the things that make you feel warm and fuzzy, but the the sights and the sounds and the smells and the and all these things that oh yeah, it's it's this because this smell. It's this because oh that those things are being put up in the decorations. Evil is not a, is not going to come out and be disgusting. It's going to be alluring. And so in our passage here this morning. We, we're going we're gonna to see several things in a culture that is full on pagan, and Paul is now planting seeds and getting people into the, into the faith of Jesus to reject, turn away from the, the worthless things. He did get several people to turn away from, the, from these things. This man, crippled from birth, is a beautiful testimony of God's power and God's love. Remember that, that difference. It's not just God's power, but it's a display of God's love. Because this man didn't go into a temple to get healed. This man was in the streets, probably, hanging out in the courtyard. This wasn't in the synagogue. But here's the coolest part I love about this. It's like you know, Jesus healing the, the, blind, the blind man in John chapter 9, who had never seen before. This guy had never walked before. Everyone in, the, everyone in the town probably knew exactly who this guy was. I mean, these towns back then weren't huge, and this guy was probably in the main square, passing. You know, where passers-by, he would offer, you know, ask for money, right? Or he might have had a little trade, like maybe sewing things or whatever, kind of like Paul, like mending tents or something, right? But everyone would have known this guy's disability. He didn't go to a god. He didn't go to the temple of Zeus, that was in Lystra. The apostles of Yahweh, the apostles in the name of Jesus, came and said, get up and walk. And boom, he got up and walked. He didn't have to go through all these ceremonies and sacrifice this and sacrifice that and put on all these shawls and do all this ceremony and all this garbage. It just simply took an act of, okay, okay, you say it, I believe it, God did it. Boom. And it amazed everyone. They're like, (laughs) 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 (laughs)
it astonished everyone. And what was their first thought? We're going to worship these guys. These guys are gods. Why? And, and why did they worship them as Zeus and Hermes? Well, let's talk about that. They said the gods have returned in human form. Let's talk about that. There's a story in the Greek culture in this region of the gods, Zeus and Hermes, or Jupiter and Mercury in the Roman pantheon. Because like I said, they're the same gods, just different names. So all the planets are the Roman names for the gods. Make it easier for you. Um, they, the gods actually, you know, so Zeus and Hermes came down. There's a story that they came down and they visited this area, this region. But they, all they found were locked doors. They, didn't, they were not welcomed by anyone. And there was a great judgment upon the region. So they were determined not to let it happen again. Well, what was that story? So Zeus and Hermes came down and appeared as mortals. Like Hermes got rid of his wings, and, but he kept his caduceus. Have you ever seen that in the, med- in the medical world? It's, got, it's the staff with the two snakes. That's called the caduceus. That's Hermes. That's an image of Hermes. That's the staff that he would carry. He also had wings on his feet and on his hat. Right? But it was the helmet of Hermes, the helmet of deception, of his way of thinking, which is the helmet that's been put on our society. That's another side note, that's another story. But so they came down and he took off his wings and everything, but he held his, his caduceus in his hand. They walked through the town, but like I said, none of them opened their doors except for Bosius and Philemon welcomed them into their poor and humble home. This old couple man and wife, and they cooked them all this stuff, and they, were, they didn't have much, and what they had wasn't nice, wasn't great. But they discovered that they were gods when they were serving them, and the wine level never diminished. They kept serving these guys, and they're like, whoa, you're gods! Whoa, we worship you! Like, we're so sorry that our beer was so bad! And we're so sorry that we couldn't give you better! And they're like, no, 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 you're, you guys are fine. Like, you guys are giving us out of the, you know, out of what you, the little that you have. And we were thankful. So what they did is the gods brought them out of the city and they watched. And that's what the little picture, I think that's one of your pictures there. Might be. Maybe not. Oh, I guess I didn't use that one. Uh, there's a picture. Uh, just kind of Google that one. Bossius and Philemon uh, and Zeus and Hermes. <coughs> Zeus and Hermes. There's a picture where they look back as the town was being utterly destroyed, except for their house. And their house, they watched it like, like grow and become this beautiful, gorgeous temple to Zeus. So their house became, this huge, became the huge temple. Remember the origins of cities having divine origins? Right? That's where this story came from. The origins of this region came from this story. So the temple of Zeus had a divine origin, according to them. And then these, you know, these, this couple became uh, priests and priestesses um, in, in that temple until the days of their death, their death. But they didn't die because they asked him that, you know, that they would not die separately. They didn't want to bury one another. And so what he did was that he, so Zeus and Hermes uh, made it to where they were, when they were at the day, on the day of their death, um, they turned um, Philemon into a oak tree and turned Bassius into a lime tree, a fruit tree. And they watched each other as they're like trying to talk, and all of a sudden like there's bark growing over them, and leaves are coming out of their neck, and like, bleep, or trees. And so that was, that was the story of, of the origins of, of this myth. That's why um, they were so... That's why they were, they were talking about, you know, they were calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul... Um, Hermes, because Hermes was the mouthpiece, the messenger of the gods. And Paul was doing all the talking. And they were like, oh, they're here. We are not going to miss it. We're going to make sure that these gods know that they are honored in this town. And Paul and Barnabas were like, no! Stop that garbage. Put away these worthless things. Your whole entire belief structure, all the holidays, your annual festivals, all of it is garbage. It's worthless. Believe in Jesus, the creator of the world. Turn away from these stupid things. We are people, we're mortals, and we are proclaiming to you 
Good news! That you should turn from these stupid things and worship to, you turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, that's all their gods of the heavens, the earth and all of the gods that they worship there, the sea, all the gods that they worship there, and everything in both. Birds, fish, animal, everything. All the gods that represent, were represented by these different animals, right? The God who made all these things, who made the heavens, who made the, the, one, the God that you don't know, you know, the God that's like fate and fatalism and time and all these things that are above your gods, that's the God that we proclaim to you today. And good news has come to you of life everlasting, of joy everlasting, of a God who loves you, of a God who heals. You see it right there. Who heals. A God who came near and is coming near to you through us. Worship the Most High God. Yahweh has been, is today, and will always be the Most High God. And they won some of them over. Like I said, they won some of them over. He, they, they barely got them to stop and sacrifice. And it's actually interesting. There's a lot of, of stories that will later come out of Lystra. A lot of disciples, a church, a very healthy and robust church is planted in Lystra in this moment. Because what happens? Then <coughs> we see vengeance from Antioch and, and Iconium. They turn to the you know, these, these people came from, um, from Antioch and Iconium, the Jews, who were jealous, again, remember, and they came to disrupt the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. They found out that they had gone over to this town, and they went there intentionally to put an end to it. So we don't know if this was the crowds or the Jews, um, but they stoned Paul, they drug his body out of the city, and let him you know, let him die. This was a, this not just this like killing him, but also a dishonoring him by not burying him. They're like, screw you and your little dog too. Leaving his body to be eaten by the wild dogs and the birds. It was the worst dishonor that you could ever bear. That your body would not be preserved. So at Jezebel, Jezebel fell out of the tower, died, and was eaten by dogs because it was an intentional picture of this person is a dishonorable person. Let them be dishonored for all eternity. The way of not only their death, but the way of their body's desecration. That they became poop, in essence. You're a crappy person, so then you become crap. By being eaten by dogs. Because what what does it become? There you go. But... And here's where we get to, to the last part of our, our passage here today. Raised to life. And I believe, because the, the word here, the antistemi, is used 27 times in the New Testament alone in reference to people who are being raised from the dead. So this isn't necessarily like he got knocked out, became unconscious and thinking, thinking that he was dead, but he really wasn't, but that he was dead. And the disciples came and circled around him, right? Thinking it was that after the disciples gathered around him, he got up. I believe that he was raised from the dead at this moment. And not just raised from the dead, but completely healed. Like all the cuts and scars and blood and everything was healed. He was dried up. He was made clean. And he was brought into this, mainly because of the use of that word, antistemi. Antistemy. Fully raised, back to life, and fully healed. Raised to life. I believe that this is probably the main reason why the church in Lystra went nuts. Because as we'll see later on, Lystra became a centerpiece for this region, for the gospel message. 
This is where, like I said, so many stories and even like saints that were later venerated in the, in, uh, in the uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church came into being. Uh, like all, like all these different people are coming out of Lystra because of the power of God at work in this town. God was working mightily. I think also because they showed, God showed his love not just to heal a man who was born lame, but also they saw a man being raised to life. Because why? Because, what does it say? After the, the disciples gathered around him, Barnabas and him were the only guys who came to this town believe in Jesus. And now they're disciples. Already. The guy who's his friends, like, guys, come and see the guys who healed me. Yeah, they're not Zeus. Go, you know, don't, don't, don't go to the temple and get sacrificed. They're not, they're not Zeus and Hermes, guys. They, but they talked about this other God. And he's awesome. He loves me. He, he loves you too. Yeah, Zeus and Hermes, they're, they're stupid. But man, this God is awesome. This God is good. This God heals. This God loves. This God is powerful. Man, you need to experience him too. Come and come and hear from hear from Paul and Barnabas. Hear about him. And this is the promise of our faith. Think about. Let's look, look at these certain passages. John three sixteen, the one passage that most people in the church know. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 11 says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in Me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And Romans chapter 8 And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That is the glory of our faith. That is the glory of our God. That is the glory of our Messiah. That is the glory of the church. And that is the glory and the hope of this world. Being raised to life. Roman, I mean, Ephesians chapter 2. But you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, and once, once walked, following after the patterns of this world, following after the, the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. Zeus, Osiris, Baal, fill in the blank, that's the prince of the power of the air. Lucifer, the god of the masons. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. My two favorite words. Everyone see them together? But God. But God, rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus. And, I always love that. It doesn't end there. There's no period there and seated you with Him in the heavenly realms. Oh! Am I the only one who gets like super jazzed by that? <laughs> but man, but God, woo! The goodies. And what are the goodies? His presence. Why did He seat us with Him in the heavenly realms? To be with Him. That's the joy of our faith. That's the hope of all the world. Christ in you. The mystery hidden before our ages, now put on display through us, His church. Because what happened? The church, I want you to get this image, surrounded Paul. Really, this is the essence of the church. This is the essence of who we are as God's saints in the world. And how we as the local church are called to operate. Surrounding the hurting. Surrounding the persecuted. 
the, literally and, and spiritually and emotionally struck down. The anxious, the abandoned, the lonely, the rejected, the broken, the, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and us in the church who are just simply trying to make it through this life, remaining faithful to our God and living as godly and honorable men and women in this life. This is the essence of the church to, to welcome these people into and be and surround one another into the welcoming and loving arms of one another. Accepted. Lifted up. Raised up. Healed. Welcomed. Wanted. Accepted. We raise one another back to life on a daily, weekly basis. Just like the church disciples did to Paul. They saw God. They, they came together and surrounded him and raised him back to life by the power that raised Christ from the dead. That same power is in us. That same power to raise people back to life, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, morally, ethically, mentally, that power resides in us because the power of Him who raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. And that is the life of the church. That's what gives life to the church is the author of life. The Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead. So don't let anything get in the way. Don't let anything get in the way. Even your perception of one another. Always see one another as people who love Jesus and who are in need of more of His, of his grace. In need of more of His love through you. Don't let any of the worthless things get in the way of our worship of Jesus. Don't let any of the worthless garbage from this world get in the way of worshiping your God. Don't let anything take over Sunday mornings. Don't let anything take over and get in the way of your ability to love and serve one another. To, in, in, to engage in your faith. To engage in the one anothering. Our whole faith is, the whole Christian faith is the, the church coming together to one another, one another. To one another, one another. To one another, God. To let God one another us. And for us to one another, one another. And then bringing in more people into the church to build up the one another's. There's more people to one another. Woohoo! I love the, the, the sign at Mid, the Midvale Church. There's no, no such thing as a stranger, only friends we haven't met yet. Only one another's that we haven't engaged and brought to the one another. I love that. Turn away from the worthless things and worship the living God. Turn away from the worthless things and love the God who loved you first. And invite others in to experience the love of the God who loved you first. And live your life through the power and the grace and the love of the God who loved you first. And then all of the other things are just going to be worthless. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your grace and Your love and Your presence. Lord, we thank You for You. (laughs) That You loved us. That You first loved us. And Lord, that you are so much better than anything and everything that this world has to offer. 
that Lord, we want You, all of You, straight, no chaser, no merging, no blending, no meshing, no mixture. Lord, we want You, we want straight Holy Spirit, straight Yahweh right into our souls. Lord, lift us and remind us where we're seated. That we are seated in the heavenly places with You. And that we live our lives from that place. We live our lives from Your glory. Not trying to achieve it. We are already there. You have seated us with You. So Lord, let that glory be before us. Let that joy be before us. Let the hope be of eternal life with You be ever in front of our eyes. That everything in this world that comes before us, we would compare to the glories to come so that we can turn away from worthless things to the living God. To the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, and we love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.